Hey there, welcome to another edition of Close to the Vest. My name is Arthur Ettinger, and I am really psyched for today's episode. This is a reoccurring issue, lots of stuff to talk about, the role of the attorney for the child, and I am really honored to have in the studio today, Phil Katz. Phil Katz is a partner with Fink and Katz, and more importantly, he is a certified by the First Department Appellate Division uh, attorney for the child, Phil welcome. Thanks, Arthur. It's good to see you and good to be here. It's really, really awesome that you're here. Uh, there is so much that I want to pick your brain and want you to share your wisdom and experiences. We have had cases against each other. You have been uh, an attorney for the kids in cases that I've had. Um, didn't really work out most of the time in my client's favor, but um, uh that's another topic for another podcast. Um, so let's just, can we just roll up our sleeves and talk about um, really what is your job and what is your role as the attorney for the child or children? So my job when I represent children is to represent the, what I view as the only true victims in the case. These are the people that have no say in what's going to happen, have no say in where mom and dad are going, and yet they're pulled in to a situation where they have to think about who they're going to live with, who's making decisions for them. And so they're truly the victims in every one of these cases. Okay. And uh, it's an interesting way to, you know, classify them as victims. Um, and one of the issues I wanted to talk about is how, you know, the process can empower the kids, but let's put that off to the side. Um, for a lot of people listening, they're either in it and they have questions or they're thinking about it and they don't know like what the process is. When do you come on the scene? So it, it's going to depend. Um, there, there are times when a case is going on for some time and a judge decides if the parents can't figure it out, the kids need a voice. And so it may be months into a case. There are other times when the case is from the beginning, very contentious. And there's an issue regarding the kids that the judge is concerned about. So I'll, I'll come in early on. Um, and either way, what a lot of adults have difficulty understanding and even attorneys have difficulty understanding, even forgetting about adults that are just coming in as litigants, is that I represent a party just like an adult. And moms and dads will, will say, I'm not going to let him speak to my child. Right. They, they don't understand that, in fact, my role is very much the same as, for example, your role representing the mom or the dad. Right. And you and mom or dad have a relationship that's a confidential relationship and you're advocating for them. And so that's my role when I come in, whether it be right in the beginning or three or four months into a case or whenever that may be. And just so we're clear and everybody knows, you get appointed by the judge. Um, and uh, a lot of times, especially when the lawyers are like known commodities uh, and they've been doing this a lot. Everybody knows the list of uh, attorneys for the kids and um, judges always want people to agree. So of course they would want uh, the lawyers to agree on names. And oftentimes we agree, you know, um, Phil's good. He's, uh, <clears throat> he's instrumental, not only advocating for the, for the client, the children, but also helping the parties settle. Um, it's an issue and I, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but how do you get paid? So it depends is the answer. 
if I'm representing um, a child or children in a case where the parents may be indigent, right, it would be something that is funded by the state of New York. If the parents are not indigent, which is often the case, then the judge, just like the judge makes a decision as to whether I'm going to be the one who's going to be the attorney, is going to decide who pays me. And the two people in the generally thought that the judge looks at are mom, dad, or dad, dad, or mom, mom. Um, so the judge is going to look at those two persons, look at their financial situation, and figure out who relatively makes more or if they're equal. And based upon that, the judge figures out, for example, if one parent's making two-thirds um, of the, the marital pie and one per, one third is the other person, then it may be parent making two thirds pays 60 some odd percent of my fee and sure. the other pays a third. I don't want to speak too much about that because we could talk, there are a lot of issues, you know, uh, lawyers getting paid and now it's, that's probably a reality that you deal with. Um, and that's a topic I think for another podcast. I want to talk about the, the, the true role of the attorney for the kids. And can you, can you separate the distinction of, you know, your job as advocate and what a lot of people, especially, um, especially a litigant expects your job to be? Absolutely. I am constantly being told not only sometimes even by judges, but that's by fair. But by litigants as well, I'm constantly being told, I appreciate that you're here to look out for the best interests of my kids. That's not my job. Mm -hmm. My job is not to look out for the best interests of the children. My job is to advocate for the children. And that is very different. And I try to explain that to the clients. Now, of course, if I'm dealing with an infant or toddler, it becomes more of a best interest situation because I'm not representing a client who is verbalizing what they want. But as soon as that child is old enough to make to independently give me uh, guidance, I'm beholden to that. Now, depending upon the attorney for the child, they may answer this a little differently. My approach is I'm not just an I'm, I'm not just an advocate. I'm also a counselor for my client, and I would hope most of my colleagues feel the same way. Just like I would hope most adult attorneys are acting in that way. And what that means is I, I don't I try not to to just be a mouthpiece for them. Mm -hmm. I try to give them the benefit of my guidance. Um, my advice based upon my experience. And hopefully we come together to a position that makes sense. But ultimately, if my client has a position, I go for that position. And to give you an extreme example, I once had a client who had a mother who, in my personal opinion, was a better parent and a father who, in my personal opinion, was not the better parent. But my client wanted to live with the father because he had all the video games in his house, right? And this is like a, a 10 or 11 year old kid. Yeah, that sounds pretty right? standard. Right, and so my position has to be what my client wants, not what I think is best. And it's very important that as an attorney for the child, you draw that distinction. You can't advocate for what you want. You can't advocate for what you think is better as a parent, as an adult. You have to advocate for what your client ultimately wants. And that all makes sense. So now let's go to the scenario where it's, it's one thing to be, you know, behind closed doors or you're meeting, whether it's on the phone or in person or, or Zoom, what have you, with your client and your counseling. So now you're in the conference. 
And invariably, when there is an attorney for the child, when you're on board, the first thing the judge does is, okay, let's hear from the AFC, because that's the right thing. Rather than go through, uh, what the hell did she say? What does he say? Or, you know, let's hear from the AFC to get to the bottom of it. Are you at that time, are you giving just what your client's position is? Or are you sprinkling, sprinkling in a little bit of your counseling? So I don't sprinkle my counseling in a private meeting with the judge and counsel. No, I don't mean that. What I really mean is, well, oh. mom, uh, my client says, judge, that he wants to live with dad. But just so we're clear, da uh, judge, dad has all the video games. And I just want to qualify what his position is. So the answer is. Because now you've, you've, you've kind of put a little lipstick on the well, pig, so, so to just speak. Just to, to give going back to that example. Because I represent a client, obviously, and well, I shouldn't say obviously, but it's obvious to me that I would not disclose any confidence unless my client gives me permission. Sure. And in that particular case, I said to my young client, okay, you want to stay with your dad because he has these video games. Is that okay if I tell the judge that? Got it. Right? And if the client says, yeah, it's okay, you tell the judge that, it's, it's the reason, it's the truth. Mm -hmm. And in that case, I, I did what my client wanted. I told the judge that, and the judge can make of that, what the judge wants to make of that. Um, but in those backdoor, it sounds sure in those meetings that we have as attorneys with the judge, there's oftentimes where I'll take, I'll, I sort of put on my, um, a different little bit of a different hat to protect my clients. And, and I'll, and I'll read the riot act to the parents, especially if, if I have a, I have a client or clients that basically love both parents. Mm -hmm. They basically don't want to be in the middle of this. And I'll, I'll explain to them what they're doing by dragging this out. I'll explain to them that they're empowering their child in a way that may not be healthy for their child in the long run. Um, and I'll explain to them that they're putting their child or children in the middle in a way that it's not going to be healthy and ultimately is going to have long-term negative effect on them. So I try to get the parents to be reasonable and be parents. Sure. Sometimes they lose sight of that fighting with each other. So I want to, I want to table that uh, and go back to that in a second. There was something you said which I think needs to be flushed out. And that is, um, you were, when I asked you the question, you said, I forget the question, but it was depending on the kid's age. And if they're like infants, your, your job is different. And so there is different ideas and thoughts as to when an AFC gets appointed. And there are some judges who will say, uh, I've got an infant. What do I appointing an AFC? And there are other judges who will say, well, there's a child here. We're at the PC. If you die, if you guys don't agree within a month, I'm appointing an AFC on this date and then a forensic on this date. And, and, and so can you just tell me, I think depending on the practitioner, we all have different feelings about this. What, what are your thoughts as an AFC about, you being appointed for a child who, let's say, for all intents and purposes, can't articulate what their wishes are. And that's, isn't that truly the definition of an AFC, is to advocate for their client? So, so I would say, no, that's not truly the definition, because the definition is, is provided in various rules of ethics and laws that guide me as an AFC. Years ago, 
you probably know that it, we used to be called law guardians. That's right. And when we were called law guardians, our the not only was were the words different, but our job was different. Um, we were much more of a, the, a best interest type of advocate than a direct advocate. Um, my, my job is to advocate for my client and my now more than looking out for best interest. Of course, there are exceptions where if my client for some reason I believe has is emotionally impaired, psychologically impaired, if he's, she is, is taking a position that I believe um, is going to put them in immediate risk of, of serious harm. Mm. There are ways I can deal with that even as the advocate um, and, and uh, contradict what my client wants, but that's a very extreme situation. So now, and that's, that's clear on the impairment. Now let's talk about, there are scenarios and I'm sure a lot of people, you know, everyone complains about it. And a lot of times it's really doesn't exist. It's just, you know, there's some fighting, but the impairment is, let's say, whether it's estrangement or what a lot of people call alienation. Sometimes it's really not alienation. It doesn't rise to the level, but something's going on. Okay. Um, whether it's jockeying a position or there's just been some brainwashing, can you just elaborate as to how your role may change? So my, my role wouldn't change per se, but the one thing about representing children, that's one of many things that is very personally rewarding and makes it actually easier to represent a client is that they're honest to a fault. Even if they don't want to be honest, they are honest. I could spend 20 minutes with a child and whether that child plans on telling me something truthfully or not, I am going to know the truth just because they're, they're not calculating in that way mm. until they get to a certain age. And that's when they become your client. Sure. <laughs> um, so um, when I am concerned about parents stirring the pot, creating an alienation type of situation, if I have concrete information, that is another case where I would say to my client, um, that's not something that I think should be going on. Is it okay if I talk to your parents about that? Mm. Is it okay if I talk to the judge about that? And most of the time they'll let me. So if, if I learn that my client is being told by mom or dad, like well, for say that mom's a bum, she's not paying her child support right. or, or, you know, or, or, you know, dad is going to leave us out on the street. Right. Um, Unfortunately, parents, when they're angry at each other, can't help themselves. They do this all the time. And it always, always comes to me. So think about that. If you're, you're in the process of or about to get divorced, don't get those kids in the middle and start talking to them. They're not your friends. They're right. your kids. Sure. And I will find out about it or whoever that attorney is. And we were going to be talking to the judge about it. And more importantly, you're emotionally damaging your kids. Sure. And it's, it's, it's so spot on. But th there are times when a kid will say, I want X, Y, and Z. I want to go live with uh, this parent. And for to your point, the reasons are just, are just so off base. Are you, when you are articulating to the court, whether it's, you know, in chambers or on the record, are you saying, here's what my client's wish is? I don't know necessarily, you know, uh, that, they're impaired, but I just want the court to know and everybody to understand there may be other things going on based on what he's told me or she's told me that have, they've given me the, the, the permission to share. Well, if I've been given the permission, 
I will share. And if I'm not, then there's always, as you know, what's called the in-camera, the meeting right. at some point that happens with the judge and and the attorney for the child and, and my client or clients, and, and it's a private meeting. And so that's the opportunity for either myself or even, for example, if you represent a client and you know that's going on, you, you're going to provide the judge with questions to ask mm -hmm. the child. So one way or the other, those types of things will come out. And so now you, you've gotten appointed and um, there are a lot of different, you know, ideas of thought by the practitioner. I typically take the position, unless my client needs me to, you know, I, I am so concerned that what's going to come out of his or her mouth. I want to give you free reign and free permission, you know, to, to speak to them whenever you want. Um, can you just explain, because there are a lot of scenarios where let's say the AFC will not communicate with the litigant because they, they're not authorized to do so. Can you speak to that? Yes, I, I certainly can. Um, Parents have to first understand that I, because they have an attorney and I represent uh, somebody who potentially is adverse to them, I can't talk to them directly without permission. When I'm assigned to a case, one of the first things I generally do is I send an, an introductory email or a, or a letter and a questionnaire about the child so I can get to learn from their perspective what is important to them about the child and get some basic information. And I let them know, and I obviously a copy goes to their counsel, that I can't speak with you without permission from your attorney. Because right away, the parents want to start lobbying me. Mm -hmm. and, and quite frankly, it doesn't, they're not going to lobby me anyway. Right. I'm going to be guided by my client, first and foremost. I'm certainly open to hearing from them, but I am, I am guided by them. And it's the same kind of thing. I don't know if you want to go into uh, this direction, but- Therapists, my clients, therapists, and how I interact with them is something that can get, can have parents scratching their heads. I think there. it's a great point. So as your role as the AFC, do you speak to individuals other than the parties and, the, and your clients? The answer is sometimes, and it depends on who they are and what the situation is and what the issue is. But I'm never, ever going to take guidance from anybody other than my client. Um, and that's where my, where my guidance comes from. Unless those extreme cases where there's something dangerous going on, my client has, is an immediate risk of serious harm. And then I, I have a third party who can give me that credible information Then I can explain that to the court in articulating why my client's position is not appropriate. We all have all, every matrimonial practitioner has this client at one time or another that says, okay, we have the AFC, you know, um, they need to speak to this person and the, the lawyer gets the laundry list of there's an email of the, you know, 15 people that uh, Phil needs to speak to. Um, are the, forget the therapist for a second. Um, what about the teachers? Are you, are you reaching out to teachers? If there's an educational issue, maybe. Um, if not, I may not. I, I mean, I, I try to keep as small a footprint as possible in the child's life because it's just bad enough that they have sure. to be involved. And we all, and it all goes back to the jockeying and, you know, I get it. Uh, your job is not an easy one because no matter how you shake it, uh, more often than not, uh, someone's going to be a little bit, if not a lot, upset at what's coming out of your mouth. 
Um, do you have a specific like strategy or process on how you're meeting with the clients? You know, back in before COVID, you know, I know a lot of uh, AFCs and I know you've done this in the past where, okay, we'd have two meetings and one meeting uh, this parent would come and then the other meeting. So they, you know, Oh, uh, he came on two times and I only got to go one time. Like, uh, does that a, does that happen? And B, I knew you're laughing, but we're laughing because it it's so true. Time. And so does that really matter to you? Like, Oh, I, I'm, I had to pick up you then drop off, you know? So the answer is <laughs> it matters to me if it might matter to my client. And so where I have a client or clients that really are taking sort of a middle of the road approach, I really try to be sensitive to that. On the other hand, if I have a client who, you know, has a one parent that's very favored, the other parent is persona non grata, I don't care what that person says because that's not my job. Mm -hmm. You know, if that person's attorney wants to, to arrange for something for me to talk to that person, that's fine, but I'm not going to cater to, I need three visits with my child because you know, my spouse did had that. I don't play that game. And, and there are times that I'll have set up the first appointment and I, and I always indicate that one parent should be there. And, and of course, both parents show up and, right. and they're like outside, you know, my office door. Cause I don't want them even in my office, quite frankly. Um, and it's, it's just, it's unfortunate. And when those types of things happen, then it becomes a situation where I'm really having to schedule with one without the other even knowing right. because I can't have that. I can't have that type of scene. Again, I try to keep a small footprint as possible to make this as, as uh, emotionally uh, the least trauma for my clients possible in terms sure. of the process. Um, you know, there are some people who say, oh, um, you sent an email to the AFC and they'll point the finger at me like, oh, I needed to copy them on every single email. And I don't, I don't, I don't, what's your view on that? Cause to me, I don't believe that I need to send everything I send to you, uh, to the other side. Why don't do you, do you absolutely don't. I mean, I, I, attorneys do that all the time. There's, there's, and in fact, I had a, I have, I have a case where recently that happened and the, both attorneys are working very hard, really good attorneys. And they have papers, you know, right. 14 pounds of paper for every motion. And they sent me their paperwork in terms of something. And the other side said, How, you, know, you didn't send it, you know, you didn't send it to me and you sent it to Mr. Katz. And, and my response was, I felt I like had to jump in there and they don't have to send it to you. What I talked to the other attorney about, it's none of your business. Right. Um, my job is to, to advocate for a client however I see fit. I am not a neutral party. Sure. I, there is no full disclosure with me. Uh, you know, I may deliberately talk with one, one attorney and prep, prep for trial with one right. attorney, because that's the side that my client wants me to fight on. That's interesting. Um, you know, like, and when we're standing out in the, in the hallway or the vestibule and, you know, that's, that's a tough position for you. And it's tough for the, for the lawyer representing the individuals getting divorced. Oh, Phil's standing over there. He's been speaking to them for 20 minutes. I can't, he's definitely on their side and you're just information gathering. I find like the, the, like the example I gave before about like sending the emails more often than not, or usually it doesn't matter if I'm, what I'm sending to you, you're still doing your job. You're not being swayed because I'm sending you more emails. Um, in fact, sometimes the, the, uh, the client, uh, the, the parent who's in my face is actually undermining what they, they're right. undermining themselves in terms of things. So I take my, my uh, cue from my client and I find a lot of times 
I could be very effective when a parent, uh, when both parents are equally favored by the, the kids as, as almost, almost like a mediator, because I'm the one it's hard for you. You know, you're representing a client who's maybe have a strong, has a strong personality and wants what they want. Right. And the other attorney representing the other uh, party has a client who wants what they want. And they don't want to hear otherwise they're paying you to do this. They want you to do this. It becomes tough. And some attorneys are better at saying, this is what you got to do. I don't care, you know, that I'm your attorney. You got to listen to my counsel, not just expect me to be your mouthpiece. Sure. Um, so I can get in there and be the so quote unquote bad guy. Yep. I can say, stop. You know, I don't care, you know, what's going on with you, you know, what you think you're going to get here, but you're going to end up getting nothing like that. To that point, can you tell me some common mistakes you share with the audience, some common mistakes that you think litigants make when um, an AFC and when you're on board? In terms of interacting with me? What, what, just whether it's common mistakes or conversely, things that they should do. If, if you're on, if you're representing their kids, you know, if your initial reaction is to uh, jockey the AFC, you know, uh, think again and do X, Y, and Z. Right. So, so my suggestion to anybody who finds himself in a divorce where there's an, an AFC has, has been appointed is the only correspondence you should be providing to the AFC is, hi, I'm here. I'm available to provide you with information if you want. Here's my contact information. And I'll let you do your job from there. Because if you have to think about it as if- It's so against human nature. Yeah. And you, and you have to think about it as if you or your child was an adult and had an attorney. Like, are you going to start talking to your, your, your husband's attorney if you're the wife or your wife's attorney if you're the mm -hmm. husband? You know, you're not going to do that. So it's the same thing. Give that attorney some space. Let the attorney get the information attorney needs from you. Use your attorney as, as the guide post as to where, what really, if there's something emergency wise that you need to get to them, talk to your attorney about it. Don't take it upon yourself. Sure. Um, and don't talk to your kids about the case. Yeah. Don't talk about the case with an earshot of the kids because the, on the phone with your, your sister, brother, mother, friend saying, you know, my husband's a jerk, you know, he's, you know, he's not paying just support. And then all of a sudden the kid hears it. I mean, you just, you have to be cognizant of that. Yeah, that is number one. It happens and that, all the time. And that just, that ends up becoming, every time I walk into the courtroom and that's my client, that's all the judge knows. That's on their folder, you know, talking to the kid. Um, can't, you can't, yeah. you can't talk to the kid. I mean, if my client knows exactly how much support dad is paying, right? I mean, he, he, he hasn't been in court. We know where the information right. is coming from, right? If we know, if, if they think dad's a cheat, Right. You know, or mom's a cheat. Right. I, it, unless my client is articulating to me most of the time, it's not the case that they see anything. Someone told them. And I find out who told them, even if they try to protect the parent that they sort of favor. So now let's, so now assuming that scenario, okay. And you say you articulate to the court, listen, this is what's going on. Do you find yourself as the case progresses? And let's say the person is, learning from their mistakes or getting good advice from their lawyer and is changing. Do you find your, yourself, have you seen situations where the kid is, is starting, acknowledges maybe dad has stopped, mom has stopped and they want to, maybe they previously wanted to spend less time with that parent. Now they want to spend more time. So, so the answer is, yeah, it happens. And 
as I st- said a little earlier, I am not just an advocate, I'm a counselor. And I'm not just a counselor, I'm a human being. I'm, I'm a father, I have children, I'm married, I have a wife. I under- understand these dynamics. And so in terms of being a human being, in terms of dealing with these things, I try to give my client counsel to improve their situation with the other parent. Because ideally you do want, unless it's unsafe, I fundamentally believe that a, a child should have a relationship with both parents. Mm-hmm. You know, no parent should have more of a relationship than the other if both parents are willing to put in the equal effort. Sure. But that's my personal opinion. If my client disagrees, ultimately after my counsel, it is what it is. But a lot, but I do counsel clients. And there are times like you are talking about where that counseling is is results in combined with that parent starting to behave. Sure a positive progression towards more access, more visits, more time, and it becomes much more normal. On the other hand, you could, I could also say it's, it's fairly, uh, fairly true that often when a child or children truly hate the other parent because of some, some alienation or something like that, it's almost always the case at some point they get to an age where they realize what was going on and they turn on that parent and they, they gravitate towards the parent that was out of favor. I see that happen so often. Yeah, but what about like I I've also seen and and that's great, but I've also seen situations where it's been it's, it's so far gone and you've now we've taken days and days and days of testimony and there are experts where that have testified to that have confirmed the uh brainwashing and the alienation um and at the to the point where the judge says, "What do you want me to do?" It's true. And, you know, in your, you're acknowledging your client's position, you're acknowledging things are going on. And, you know, I think this is, and this is really this, we can have three podcasts on this alone. And I think we are seeing a lot of this. Um, you know, I just, to me, it's, it's frustrating representing the individual who's, you know, to borrow your word, the victim in that scenario. Um, and I, I hope yeah, this is what every good matrimonial lawyer says to their client, you know, maybe not now, maybe in the future, the child's going to wake up and realize, you know, uh, the error of their ways. Um, in any event, talk about, you know, when I have an AFC, a good AFC like yourself in a case, regardless of what you're advocating during the conference, I look at you as another opportunity to help at least open up the dialogue for settlement. So can you talk about that and, and what your position is? Cause I know once, you know, once the clock starts with the court appearance, your job is to advocate, but can you tell me how you approach the case uh, when we're not in a conference? So ultimately with my client's objectives in mind, I try to sort of sh- try to shake the parents into some sort of reality. And I find that in many cases, the common thread with both parents with both parents is they love the kids. It's generally true. Sometimes, unfortunately, it's not, but generally it's true. And when I have that thread to hold on to from both of the parents, a lot of times I can use that and use and get them back into focus on what these kids want and what they need and get them to settle a case in a way that maybe they don't really want to do it, but but I make them hear what, what's going on with their kids. And so in that sense, I can, I can often do that by just sort of use it, pulling on that common thread. That's great. Um, and I know 
it's not your technically your job. Have you been asked to um, try in those in certain instances to help, let's say, settle the the economic issues? So, economic issues I generally don't get involved in, but if there is an issue that really is a linchpin to the settlement, and it it really would behoove my clients or me to get in the middle of it. Um, I mean, I won't, I won't shy away from doing that. Sure. If both other attorneys say, don't take the position, well, you shouldn't be involved because typically the attorney for the child doesn't they'll get involved in the monetary aspects. Um, so I, I will do it. I mean, I don't, I, I, my goal is singly focused on getting my client, what my client wants. And if it means reaching a little bit into that area, if the, all the attorneys will talk, that's fine. I mean, often attorneys will want to schedule a, 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 all attorneys and all, and all clients and me in a conference so that I could be the one to talk some sense into them. Sure. As a, as a, as an attorney and a practitioner to you, what do you see being the, um, the biggest reward representing, uh, kids? Getting them out of the case, getting them what they, Amen. yeah. And you know. what do you see being, uh, the, uh, worst part of the biggest drawback in, in turn. Well, I, re I represent children, unfortunately, in cases that there's neglect and abuse sure. as well. So that is some of the worst stuff to see. And it does happen in some cases where children are truly abused, uh, and they become truly the victims. Um, right. and so those are some of the worst cases. Yeah. That, the, that is, and then puts a lot of what, like a garden variety matrimonial cases and what those people are dealing with really into perspective. Cor yeah, correct. I mean, you, you could have cases where there are children who bones shattered because a parent gets so angry that they hurt them uh, and that happens. Yeah. So, but the most of the cases you and I are dealing with are nothing like that. Right. These are problems about whether they go to this, the, the finest uh, private right. school or their second finest private right. school. And it's a, and, and these are, you know, problems everybody should have kind of. Sure. Um, and I, and I warn parents about this stuff. If you start getting into a situation where you're bad mouthing the other parent, you're making that other saying, you don't have to listen to that other parent when you're at the other parent's house, it's going to come back to roost because then that child's going to figure out, well, I don't have to listen to you either then dad or mom. Sure. And then you get it, you raise a kid who becomes out of control. So, yeah. Um, I know you're married. I know we all as practitioners take this stuff home with us. Tell me. Um, you know, what your experience, you know, how being in a happy marriage has impacted your role as, as a matrimonial lawyer in an AFC and vice versa, how being uh, a mat lawyer has impacted your relationship <laughs> at home. So, so, I mean, yeah, we all bring it home. I, I honestly don't talk about any of it at home, but you bring it home because it's a lot of emotional wow a lot of emotional stuff going on. So, but I come home and I appreciate things more. Um, and I laugh a lot more at, at some of the things that I hear mom and dad in court arguing about. Cause you know, it happens in my home too. Right. But we get through it because quite frankly, the alternative is my kids having an AFC and I will not be happy with the results. Sure. So I don't want to have that for my family. You know, it's not easy being married and, uh, but you have come to appreciate it a lot more when you see, the craziness that goes on in these divorces. Scary. Yeah. 
Um, so there's so much more we could talk about. I really appreciate you coming on. I would love to have you come back and sure. uh, dive e even deeper. Um, I really appreciate you coming here. Thank you so much. I My really pleasure. Respect you. Anytime. I have one last question for you. Uh oh. So I'm a big sneaker guy. Okay. So I let ask my guests at the end of the podcast, what's your uh, favorite sneaker? My favorite sneaker. I, I, I can tell you, I have I, my favorite brand is Nike, but okay. Nike, Nike, as my yeah. kids correct me all the time, or Nike. I don't know which one it is. It's all good. But I don't have a favorite uh, particular sneaker. All right. Cool. Well, thanks so much for coming, man. Okay. Bye.